Hi everyone, this is Marlena Gross-Taylor here, founder of Edu Gladiators, and we are so happy to have you join our podcast tonight. And before I, before I let him introduce himself, I just want to talk a little bit about what our chat tonight will, our podcast will be about. This series for this month of December, we're talking about having fierce conversations, and it was really inspired by Susan Scott's book, Fierce Conversations. And it's about coming from behind the words we say to have authentic conversations to drive uh, goals, production, success, whatever it might be. And so I thought it was only fitting that we have uh, someone of Eric's caliber and expertise to bring us around to having fierce conversations about questioning. So without further ado, Eric, why don't you tell everyone hello and a little bit about yourself? Hi everyone, my name is Eric Francis and I am call myself a professional education specialist. I provide professional development on teaching and learning for cognitive rigor and also for college and career readiness. And I am also the author of, now that's a good question, How to Promote Cognitive Rigor Through Classroom Questioning, published by ASCD. I've been an educator for over 20 years. I've been a school teacher, I've been a site administrator, I've worked for a state education agency and now I have my own company called Maverick Education, and I uh, travel the country working with K-12 schools on how to uh, provide uh, learning experiences that promote cognitive rigor and prepare students to be college and career ready. Awesome, awesome. We're just excited to have you, uh, Eric, here and talking about uh, questioning and rigor because what I found just in my experience is that Rigor is, has become a, definitely a buzzword, and I think a lot of people may not really understand what rigor is, or maybe we just have different uh, definitions of what rigor is. So before we jump into asking good questions, because I know a lot of your work is based on uh, really understanding rigor, what's your definition of rigor, particularly conceptual rigor? Well, it's interesting in terms of how rigor is defined. We have the traditional definition, which is rigor is difficult. And it is difficult. It sets high expectations for students to work hard to learn. And that difficulty is measured by the amount of time and effort it takes a student to uh, answer a question, address a problem, or accomplish a task. It talks about the condition or context in which a question is posed or problems presented or a task is provided. But it also is difficult in terms of the confidence and capability of the student to answer that question, address the problem, or accomplish that task. Rigor is also complex in that it expects students to uh, demonstrate higher levels of thinking and communicate depth of knowledge. And when we talk about rigor, the uh, big term that's used more so often is cognitive rigor. And cognitive rigor involves challenging students to demonstrate higher levels of thinking as categorized by Bloom's Revised Taxonomy and communicate depth of knowledge as designated within the levels of Webb's depth of knowledge model. Those are the two instructional frameworks that are used to truly define and determine what it means to have a rigorous learning environment. So if you want a basic simple definition of rigor, rigor is an experience. It's not defined by a specific item, it's not defined by the specific task, or even a specific question. Rigor is an experience, and that experience should set high expectations for students to demonstrate and communicate their learning. It should challenge students to think deeply and express and share the depth and extent of their learning. It should engage students 
to think strategically and also extend their thinking beyond the classroom, beyond the curriculum, and also beyond themselves. But most importantly, rigor is encouraging. It encourages students to express and share the depth and extent of the knowledge and thinking they have acquired and developed insightfully and in their own unique way. I love that. Love that definition. And everyone, if you are joining in tonight and you have questions for uh, for Eric, uh, please type it in the chat. We have our core warriors that are also online and monitoring the chat to make sure we don't miss anyone. If you have a question, chime in there and we'll be sure to answer it. And, and just great to have another dialogue going on. Uh, Eric, so you talked about Bloom and Web, and I think that Again, there are some misconceptions or varying definitions of, you know, what is Bloom and Webb's work? What is the purpose of it? And how that relates to questioning. So if you don't mind, could you dive a little bit deeper into Bloom and to Webb and just what it is and, and even what it isn't? Well, let's talk about first what it is and let's start with Webb's. Um, many people have been given what's called the DOK wheel, the depth of knowledge wheel. It is something that was uh, saturated into the professional development trainings and the race to the top trainings to prepare teachers to teach to the common core state standards. Interestingly, it is not an authentic document. From what I understand the history of the document is, is that the wheel was designed by a third grade teacher in Florida. And Florida is where they had depth of knowledge incorporated into their assessments. So this teacher put this visual online to basically create a uh, tool that teachers could use uh, to uh, create lessons and assessments and provide instruction that addresses depth of knowledge. But it's not accurate because depth of knowledge is not driven by the verbs. Blooms defines the verbs. Blooms is all about the verbs. That's the cognition. That's the cognitive action students need to demonstrate and communicate. The DOK wheel is built on verbs, and that's not what depth of knowledge is about. Depth of knowledge is about context. It's about how you transfer and use what you learn, uh, the different uh, levels in which you are transferring and using what you learn. So what happened was with the wheel, is that the wheel is making its rounds on the internet, and then during the race to the top trainings, a State Department of Education was doing a search to say, is there a visual about depth of knowledge? And they found this wheel on the internet, so they incorporated it into their trainings. So 45 other states uh, said, what are other states doing? And they found this one State Department of Education using this wheel, and they said, oh, it must be authentic. So they incorporated it into their trainings. Norman Webb, who came up with Depth of Knowledge, has refuted the wheel. It's in a blog by uh, Dr. John Walkup, who came up with the concept of cognitive rigor with Karen Hess. In fact, if you have the DOK poster, the depth, uh, DOK wheel poster, there's a link on the bottom that is attributed to Norman Webb, but that link is dead. It is not an active link. It takes you to the University of Wisconsin. So Depth of Knowledge deals with the context in which students demonstrate and communicate their learning. Blooms defines the higher order thinking that students are expected to demonstrate. So when I have an educational objective, the cognitive action is categorized within Blooms. Now what's really interesting is that Benjamin Bloom did not design that taxonomy for questioning. In fact, if you read his book, 
he says this his taxonomy is meant to create educational objectives that questioning is an instructional methodology and strategy and he's not categorizing that Anderson and Crothwell who revised it they also warned against it it was actually a guy named Norris Sanders who wrote a book classroom questions what kinds who said Bloom's taxonomy is a good resource to create questions but use it cautiously we have these two instructional frameworks that we've been using traditionally in education for years and we've been using it to try to create our questions but they're not meant to be used to create questions and that's why I wrote my book is how can we use these instructional models that we're using to create the good questions that we want to ask our students we want to address our students Wow uh, for those of you that are listening in joining in or maybe you're watching the replay right now I don't know about you, but I was blown away the first time that Eric shared this with me, and, and I'm sure you're feeling the same way, because as, as educators, we, we, we focus so much on the verbs, and we feel like we have to have those. I've been guilty of that, both as a teacher and as a principal, like we need to have these key verbs to drive our questioning. So what you're saying, Eric, is that it's not about the verbs. Is that correct? I'm saying depth of knowledge is not about the verbs. Um, I can use the same verb, and there's a lot of examples out there, it's very accurate. Uh, for example, if I could say describe. So if I say describe where you live, that's a depth of knowledge one. Uh, describe how to get to your house, that's a depth of knowledge two. Uh, describe uh, why your neighborhood is organized as it is, that's a depth of knowledge three. Describe uh, the history behind the development of your neighborhood and how it has evolved and how would you evolve it to uh, make it address needs in the future, that's a DOK4. So if you notice I have the same verb, but it's in different context. What's interesting is that we have been using these frameworks. And I'm not saying get rid of the framework. I'm saying that in education, we need to be very, very clear about what this tool, what the tools are that we're using and whether we're using them uh, accurately and appropriately. So Bloom's is about creating educational objectives. That's why it's all about the verbs. And in fact, when Anderson Crathwell revised it, they made it specifically about the verbs. They, they changed it from conceptual nouns to cognitive actions. Webb created depth of knowledge because we had all these students thinking deeply, but they were not transferring using what they were learning in different contexts. Now, what's also interesting is that Blooms and Webs are also tools that are typically used for assessment. Webb designed his uh, depth of knowledge model to create assessments. Blooms did it for educational objectives. What we need to do is take these models and turn it into instructional tools. How can we design the learning experiences that will not only set the instructional focus but also serve as assessments for student learning. And that's what I did in my book, and that's why I say, instead of telling kids to do it, or giving kids directives, or presenting students in, with an item, which is what a test question is, it's an item, turn those objectives, those standards, those statements into good questions that will not only prompt students to think deeply, but also express and share the depth and extent of their learning. Absolutely, absolutely. So what is the purpose of a good question? That's a good question right there. <laughs> What's the purpose? 
a lot of people say to me, what is a good question? I ask, what is a good question? Um, my book is not about categorizing questions as good or bad. I say a bad question is something that is a conversation or cognition killer, such as yes or no questions. You can basically say, uh, should the death penalty be abolished? Yes, no, I don't care. Okay. A good question stimulates deeper thinking. It gets the kids really thinking about what do I need to learn here? What is the information I need to go out and acquire and gather to process the deeper knowledge and thinking? A good question also deepens knowledge, understanding, awareness. It takes students to areas and avenues that they never ever thought about. A good question also expands knowledge and extends thinking. It should go beyond the curriculum, beyond the classroom, even beyond themselves. It also piques curiosity, imagination, interest, or wonder. We need to ask good, interesting questions. We need to ask questions that make kids go, wow, I never really thought about that. But most importantly, a good question encourages students to express and share the depth and extent of their learning insightfully and in their own unique way. That's where all the personalization comes in. We don't just want students to repeat or restate or even regurgitate the information they find in text or presented by us teachers. We want them to synthesize that information into their own words and in a way that's clear, that's comprehensive, that is critical and also creative. That's where a good question takes the students. How can you make the learning your own? I love that. And you know what really stood out in your and your response just now was about creating questions or giving students questions that make them wonder. Uh, I think we are so used to giving students the answers instead of questions. And uh, one of my friends, Brian McKnight, just wrote a blog post about giving students, stop giving them the answers, but start asking the questions. So if you have, if you have teachers in front of you right now, what can they do to start asking good questions? How do they start doing that? Well, it's interesting. I want to address the thing about the answers because um, they say these days that answers come free. Um, pretty much everything we want to find when it comes to a factual answer can be Googled. And people say if it can be Googled, it's a bad question. That's not necessarily true. Google is a fact of life. Okay, If I asked you, what are the names of all 50 states? And some of you may be able to just sing the song or memorize off the head, but most of you are going to take your phone and you're going to do a Google search and go here. Okay, we need to teach students how to think critically about how to use the information that they're finding through Google, through search engines. That starts with, first of all, teachers need to look at their standards. Standards are not questions, they're directives, they're instructional. They say, do this. In my book, I talk about how you can rephrase standards into questions. In the book, it talks about a process I say, show and tell. So instead of saying the student will, um, understand the concept of ratio and use rate reasoning to solve problems. I say show and tell and you automatically have to change that standard, that performance objective into a question. So it becomes show and tell how can the concept of ratio and rate reasoning be used to solve mathematical and real world problems. Take off show and tell and you have your question. Now, what's interesting about professional development or people who provide professional development like me is that we stick to this one process, but not every teacher is going to get it. So in my PDs, I'm always trying to differentiate the professional development. I want them to create good questions. I don't want them to feel that they were forced to do the Eric Francis method. So I just came up with a different process. I was working with a school in um, 
Florida, and I was working with some K through three teachers, and they had a hard time with the show and tell. So what we did was we took the standard, which is an imperative statement that says do it, and we turned it into a factual statement, a declarative sentence, and from there we made the question. So let me show you for example. If I said um, understand the concept of ratio and how rate reasoning can be used to solve mathematical real world problems, I turn into a factual statement. The concept of ratio and rate reasoning can be understood and used to solve mathematical real world problems. Our students have to answer how can the concept of ratio or rate reasoning be used to solve mathematical or real world problems. So our standards are the first place. Also, every statement you see in a text, turn it into a question. Don't just accept the facts for what they are. Ask how, why, what is the reason, what's the cause and effect, what's the relationship. We also need to pull sections out of our text and use those as our textual evidence. Don't allow the items in our curriculum to drive the assessment or instruction. Have those good questions be the instructional focus and serve as the assessment and use our curriculum as textual evidence. Writing is important, communication is important, but most importantly, the good questions are gonna to have to come from ourselves and our students. We are, have a lot of expertise in what we teach. We love what we teach. We wouldn't be teaching if we didn't love what we teach. The problem we face, and I face this as a teacher too, I was sharing with my students my love. I was shoving it at them. You better like this book. You need to like this book. This is a great book. Instead of shoving it at them, share it and share it with the question. Don't just say, The Scarlet Letter is an amazing novel because it addresses the theme of guilt religiously, stereotypically, socially, and psychologically through the four main characters. Ask them, how does the Scarlet Letter address the themes of guilt stereotypically, socially, um, psychologically, and stereotypically, um, religiously through the four main characters? Or why did Hawthorne um, write this book? How does this book address Hawthorne's feelings about uh, the Puritan uh, culture? Instead of giving the kids everything, have them go out, get that information, not memorize it, but synthesize it in their own words, and then turn them into the teacher. Have them teach you. Your job basically becomes to give them the basic information they need to set them out, and then they come back and provide what they found, and you either affirm it, question what's the credibility of the source, or say, is that as far as you want to go with it? Are you sure about that? Uh, did you think about this? Um, I actually had my students, they would choose how far they went with their answers and actually choose their grade with their answers. Wow. That is, yeah. impressive. That is impressive. Well, what I used to do is I would go to my student, I would say, um, you know, is this your final answer? And they'd say, yes. I said, is this your A answer? And they'd say, yes. And I said, well, who gives the A? Now we have the whole thing, like, I don't give grades, you earn them. What I've found in my experience is that what's happened is our students are starting to think, well, I worked hard for this, so therefore I should deserve an A. No, it's about the quality of the response. So what I'll do with my students is I'll say, um, do you want an A? And I say, well, why don't you look into this? And I'll give them and I'll guide them and say, go further with it or give a deeper explanation or try to elaborate more on it. And I said, that's up to them correct answer it's actually really average you're either right or you're wrong 50 50 you're correct or incorrect excuse me 50 50 but we want our kids answers to be so 
acceptable. Basically, this is they followed the rules, went beyond it. Uh, appropriate, they used appropriate language and authentic. It's about them. It expresses how they perceive things. So that's what I do with my students. I would say, you know, what grade do you want? Because right here, you have a C. Do you want a B? Look into this. Do you want an A? Go further. That helped a lot with the parents because when the parents would come into me and say, why is my child not getting an A in the class? I would go, I don't know. I told them what to look for. I told them what to include in there. They chose not to. That's a good point. You know, we all know that having parents as part of the conversation in education is, is a critical piece. Uh, for some districts, you know, having that parent participation in their child's education is the turning point of how that district is perceived. How do we help our parents ask good follow-up questions from what their kids might have learned that day or might be learning? Well, I think also if you ask what happened in school today, answer nothing or how is school okay ask them like i ask my kids well, what topics are you learning in this class or what are you studying in this class what would you learn about this today um i was talking to my daughter the other day i said well, what are you learning in science today and she told me i'm learning about the animal kingdom and i said well tell me about the animal kingdom well, what what did you learn about it well there's different categories well, what are those categories how are they organized so if i had a cat and a bird could i create uh, a new animal. No. Why? Because they're a different species. Okay. Well, what if I had a dog and a wolf? Can I create a new animal? Yes. Why? Because they're the same species and of the same uh, category. So really getting into them, really asking them like, hey, what are you learning in class? Share with me what you're learning in class. And also we as teachers, we need to also be not so, and this is more so in math, um, what they call the common core math, like if you bring home uh, the lattice box or lattice math mathematics, that's a way to do math. Now, I can multiply triple digit numbers and I can do it the standard way, but I'm also finding in my old age, I'm doing it using place value where I break it up and then drop the zeros, bring them back, do my partial products, and then um, add it together to get my final product. We need to have the students be exposed to these ways but we should not force the student to say, you must now do math using the lattice box. I have yet to see on any standardized assessment an example of the lattice box. I have not seen an example of it on PARC. I have not seen it on Smarter Balanced. The other independent tests, I've not seen on the benchmark assessments. I've seen it on Khan Academy. I've seen it in the curriculum. It's giving this misconception that this is now the way students need to do math. No, the question is how else could triple digit numbers be multiplied using different methodologies? So I might show them the standard algorithm, I might show them place value, I might show them a lattice box, I might show them uh, um, squares. So we need to show the students different way, but the most important question we should ask is, which way works for you and why? Then hit them with all those problems they have to do and watch how deep they can go with it. That's a great point. You know, some of my teachers, many of my teachers would, uh, would actually send home question starters or conversation starters uh, for parents to ask their, their child once they, you know, got home or at dinner. And it also made the parents look like they, you know, know everything because the kids were like, you know about that? How do you know that? You know, so it was great affirmation for the parents, but many of my teachers would send home a lot, some of those same really good questions 
uh, home so the parents could help ask and reinforce what the students were learning. Well, even you know, with teachers, have them really ask questions that get the kids thinking and then want to go home and say, wow, you can't believe what I learned. One of the lessons I use is I say, uh, who's the first president of the United States? And the kids automatically say, George Washington. And I'd say, how do you know? And what well, my teacher taught me, well, how did your teacher know? Well, the book says so. Well, history says so. A question actually for the 21st century learner is not only to assess knowledge, but it's to prompt them to say, this is the information, this is what I need to go find out. So that's when they go, go on Google, they go on online searches. And what they do is, if they enter that question in, they'll find that there are actually eight gentlemen before George Washington who were called Presidents of the United States under Congress assembled under the Articles of Confederation. So there were eight presidents before George Washington, which is the argument. So now the debate becomes, should George Washington be taught as the first president of the United States, or should these other eight individuals be considered presidents? The project-based learning or the driving question could be, what kind of plan could you come up with that would bring greater awareness that there were eight presidents before George Washington, or eight people named president before George Washington? The positions were very different. So you can ask questions like, what distinguished the presidents of the United States under Congress assembled from the presidents of the United States under Constitution? Uh, what if the United States was still governed under the Articles of Confederation, which is what the source of this unit is? Every kid I've done this lesson with, they've run home and they've gone, wow, did you know there were eight presidents before George Washington? Now, some people in a lot of the history buffs might say, you know what, that's not historically accurate. Well, there's a great argument because it's a great argument to say there, what did I ask? Who was the first president of the United States? I didn't say who was the first president of the United States in the Constitution. I said, who was the first president of the United States? And there were eight people named before that. Another great thing about that experience is I did this with a professional development, same school in Florida, and this person said, the first president of the United States is John Hansen. And I said, well, how do you know this? You were a history buff. She goes, no, he's my ancestor. Wow. And it was amazing. And what happened was I said, well, here's a project-based learning I give the kids. You are a lobbyist. The descendants of these people have come to you to lobby to Congress to pass a bill to acknowledge that these eight men were presidents of the United States. How would you create that argument and present it to Congress? Or how would you be the legislator or the senator? What kind of argument can you create against it? She loved it. And in fact, I did a parent night that with the kids. And I told them, I said, one of your teachers is the descendant of this president. You need to find out who it is. Talk about you know, school involvement, parent involvement. Wow. Wow. That is absolutely fabulous there. I mean, I can just imagine their excitement trying to figure out who is, you know, kin to a famous person, right? <laughs> or the first president of the United States, arguably. And it's really funny because that lesson from history actually came from a science lesson about Pluto. Should Pluto be considered a planet or not a planet? And the better question actually is, should Pluto be considered a planet, not be considered a planet, because there was a majority vote of the International Astronomers Union in 2007 said, no, it's not a planet. Or should we look at what's said in the Harvard-Smithsonian debate in 2010, which says that the definition of a planet is subjective. So I just taught you a lot without telling you anything with the question. The students turn into the teachers. The students are the ones who basically then share their ideas and share the information they have. And we're there to either affirm or guide them to correct them, their mistakes. That's awesome. So hey, let's go to our chat box. We have some great conversations going on right here. And one of, one of the comments here says that, um, 
one, one educator said they've been engaged in discussion where difficulty is mistaken for complexity. Difficult questions are mistaken for complex questions. And they don't believe difficult questions are necessarily complex. I want to know what are your thoughts on that? You're absolutely right. Difficult questions are not complex. Um, difficulty, and I had a slide about this. Uh, my friend Bethany Hill put this out for in a lead up chat. Um, difficulty is defined by the amount of time and effort it takes to do something, the uh, conditions or the context in which the, the, the assignment is given. So for example, a test could be difficult because of the context or the conditions of it. And also the confidence level of the student to complete that. Think of it this way, a marathon is difficult. An obstacle course is complex because there is no straightforward correct or incorrect way or answer. There's a lot of different ways to get to that. There's a lot of different steps you have to go to. So when it comes to being complex, complex is about how many different ways can I get to my result or how many different results could there be? Um, it, it deals more actually with problem-based learning uh, than it does with uh, completing uh, or attaining answers, outcomes, results, or solutions. So what I, I define, actually I define it in my book as well, is that difficulty is about, is defined as, described as easy or hard. Complex is described as simple or complex. Two plus two equals four. That is easy or hard depending upon what grade level you are, or depending upon your ability to add, but it's simple because there's a straightforward answer. Now that multiplication problem, it can be easier hard based upon the triple digit, but it also can be complex because there's different ways to come up with that product. Difficult and complex is actually complicated. That's what something means, is that basically it takes a lot of time and effort, and it takes a lot of to basically come up with the answer, outcome, result, or solution. Awesome, awesome. We have another, uh, another comment from one of our folks on the chat, in the chat window that says that we really need to listen to what our kids have to say when they're answering questions, because that can lead to deeper questions. What do you mm -hmm. think about that? I think that's fantastic. In fact, I think we should have students dictate the conversations and see where the learning goes. A lot of times, uh, we teachers get in trouble because we're the ones who are lecturing and we give our impressions. We share what we know. We share what we understand. Um, and a lot of times what we said can be misinterpreted, uh, can be misconstrued. And that's what gets us in trouble a lot is because sometimes we talk too much and we're saying too much and the students go home and they say, hey, I learned in Mr. Francis class that uh, Hitler was the man of the year in time and people think that he was a great leader. Well, there's literature out there that says that and there's factual information that says that. They go home to parents and say, what are you teaching? That's why we need to have questions. For example, I asked, I asked a provocative question when I taught the Scarlet Letter. I said, why is the modern day Scarlet Letter TMZ? And my kids thought about for a second, I said, well, tell me about the people who are on TMZ. And they used foul language and they didn't use appropriate language, but that came from them. And as a teacher, I said, okay, we need to keep this appropriate in here. Tell me the type of people who are on TMZ. 
what I want to do is I can't control what comes out of the mouth of babes. I can't control what comes out of my students. And sometimes they may come in and give a lot of, you know, outrageous, incredible information. And instead of saying, no, you're incorrect, no, you're wrong, you're shutting them down. Guide them, guide them to the correct answer, guide them to the response. Especially in this climate we have right now where our students are being bombarded by fake news on their social media. And they're coming in with this outrageous impressions of, you know, the people who are going to be our leaders in the future. Think critically about that. Use questioning. Because if you say anything as a direct statement, it could really, really, really hurt you as a teacher. And to tell you the truth, and I know I kind of talk about it right away, who do we want to give the answers? Who do we want to address and respond to the questions? The students. When we stand up there in front of the room talking, we're giving them all the answers. And five are, are paying attention. How do we know? Because they're interacting. Ten, ten are listening politely because that's what they learn when someone's in the room. Uh, but are they listening deeply? If you can capture a class, an audience, maybe 10 or 20 are engaged and they're entertained by you. And you still got five who are on their phones or, you know, falling asleep or doing what I call the backpack rocket launcher, right, with that backpack ready to blast off and then the bell rings. If you ask the question and have the students go out and get the answer, is really the true deeper learning we want them to have. Try ask, try it tomorrow. Ask a question you want the students to address and respond. Most likely they're going to go like this. Uh -huh. And then all you say is, I don't expect you to. I just asked the question. This is what you need to go out and address and respond. If you don't know by the end of class or you don't know by the end of the week, then we have a concern. All right, last question from our chat, Eric, uh, is how do we motivate struggling learners to ask better questions? Find out what interests them. That's what I talk about in my book, what I call the personal question. It's, it's the second to last chapter. I actually ask my students, what do you want to learn about this topic? And they would go and come up with their question after a couple of days where we've started to get the background knowledge by asking factual questions and delving a little bit deeper with analytical reflective. I say, well, what do you want to learn about this? They then have to present their question to the class. I want to learn uh, why we don't use the Articles of Confederation anymore. I want to learn how can ratio and rate language be rate reasoning be used using Google Maps. I tell my students. That is the question you're going to address and respond. That's your question. And you're going to teach your answer to the class at the end of the unit. Now, they can work by themselves. They can work with a partner. They can work in a group. If someone doesn't have a question, they can go to that other student and say, can I work with you on that question? And that student has the right to say, no. Because why do we want to force sometimes? Some kids don't want to work in groups. Some kids work in, independently. Okay. So why do we force groups on them? But then I would say, okay, do you want to address that question? They say, yes. I said, okay, good. Now we have different perspectives. Um, I had a student who their personal question was always, what do I need to learn this? And I said, okay, here's the rules. You can't say I don't. I don't need to and I don't want to because now we're not talking about cognition. Now we're talking about compliance and behavior. So this student who actually got five on all their AP exams and uh, 1,600 SATs, clearly a genius, um, failed every class because they were not motivated. He can pass a basic skills test, um, any kind of knowledge test. That became his question. He also was uh, horribly depressed. He had a very, very 
diagnosed with very, very um, manic, strong manic depression. But this got him into school, and he would come in and say, why do I need to learn this? And he'd either tell us he doesn't need to learn this, and here's why, and he'd give a good argument, and he'd cite the actual literature that he was reading, or he'd say, you know, at first I didn't think I needed to learn this, but I'm really glad I did, and here's why. That actually motivated him to come to school. So that's what we need to do. Get the kids interested. You know, what their appetite. I used to sometimes even teach with, 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 uh, with false information. I, I taught my kids. I said, what if I told you Teddy Roosevelt started the U.S. Forestry Division because he encountered a Sasquatch in the Pacific Northwest? And he, wanted, and he did it to protect um, you know, animals that are not been uh, identified yet and those that have been. And the kids looked it up. And sure enough, in Teddy Roosevelt's book, Wilderness Hunter, written in the late 1800s, there's a thing called the Bauman Incident where he talks about a fur trader who encountered an ape-like creature in the Pacific Northwest of a Native American legend in Teddy Roosevelt's own book. And my kids, what they said was, can we read that book if we find it? Isn't that the greatest thing you want your kids to say? Wow. That's cool. Can I go out and learn more about this? Absolutely. That's how you get them motivated. Get them excited. Whet their appetite. Show them and share with them there is a connection between what you're reading, what you're learning, what you're doing in school, and the real world. Absolutely. And actually, they can even refute or defend whether what's presented to them is authentic. You can take the movie San Andreas and say, is that possible? Could that possibly happen? And the kids will find out that actually, yeah, there's two fault lines in California that could possibly sink it into the ocean. And it may not be the San Andreas. It may be the one that runs from San Francisco to Japan. That's awesome, Eric. Awesome. Hey, we are coming to the end of our time, but I have to ask, have to ask this question. You're so phenomenal. I just learn so much every time we chat and talk and, and your tweets and just love it. Who's your superhero? And why? I have three. I don't know. That's a good question. That's a good question. I have three. When I was a kid, I, I really loved Spider-Man. Um, you know, I really, uh, you know, the, the Peter Parker, I really kind of related to him. You know, the fact that, you know, no one knew he was Spider-Man. He puts this full face mask on and he becomes this person that, the cool kid. Um, but it's really, I think, throughout my life, the two I really, really have liked and maybe I'm not cool for this, but I really like Superman and Captain America. Um, I always have. I, I, there's a lot of people who don't like, I'm a comic book guy, so that's a great question. Um, there's a lot of people who don't like Superman. There's a lot of people who don't like Captain America because they feel like they're too perfect and they want to go more towards, you know, the Batman or, you know, even Iron Man because they're cool. But, you know, I just look at these guys as like, you know, they, 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 these two characters they could swing to the dark side. They could swing and, and use their what their power for evil or you know for, for personal you know use and, and selfishness. But there's a purity about both of them. And and I think in this day and age we need to stop looking at these darker heroes. And I think we need to start looking at heroes who can provide us hope. And that's what's interesting about those two characters, because they came both out of a dark period. You know, Superman was a representation of the Great Depression, and Captain America was a great uh, a representation of what was going on with World War II. And I think in this time, instead of us always gravitating towards these, these negative heroes, we need to start gravitating towards more positive people who say, you know, in the darkest of times, you know, you stand up and hold true to your values and hold true to you are. And I think that's what Superman and Captain America represent. 
So I love that answer. I, I love that. I love that. Uh, and I totally agree. I mean, we, we do not have enough light and hope in the world, especially these days. It seems like that anyway. So, you know, maybe the question we should be asking is how can we bring more of that, you know, to fruition? So before we uh, take off tonight, tell me, or, or tell our viewers as well, what, what can they do tomorrow to start asking good questions? I would even start simple and say, I've been teaching you guys about this, whatever I'm teaching. What do you want to learn about this? What are you, what are you curious about? What do you really want to learn and know about this? Put it on them. Once you have that, take the approach, not of a teacher, but of a student. Think about the good questions that you were asked as a, as, a, as a child in a classroom. And think about the questions you wish your teachers asked you. My whole book, all those questions in there was, you know, I wish my teacher asked me these questions. I wish my teacher got me so motivated and riled up. At the end of the day, we have enough assessments out there to measure learning, learning. These kids to really think deeply about what it is they're learning and how can we really get them to share the depth and interest of their learning. So tomorrow, ask them, okay, we've been going over this a little bit. What do you want to learn about this? And how could you teach the class to do this? Or how could you, what information can you provide? Or what could you design, develop, and do that would make this more understandable for an audience if they're confused for it? Awesome. Okay, awesome. okay educators. The gauntlet has the gauntlet been thrown. And we all have a challenge of asking students what do they want to learn. 